Hi, we welcome back to another episode of Hillcrest Theater Podcast. Uh, continuing with our discussion on Prince Caspian, now moving into chapters 3 through 7. Uh, Mr. Long is here again with me, Porter Eldridge, to talk about it. Um, in the last episode, we talked about how uh, they had gotten their gifts from Father Christmas in their old castle of Caeparavel, but they were missing Queen Susan's horn. Um, we pick up on this in this chapter very soon after that, as they are eating their breakfast of apples from the orchard, and discover something coming around a bend of like the the river yeah our first introduction to other people on this island that heretofore had been uninhabited it felt like yeah uh there's this boat that comes out with two people in the boat and uh what they eventually figure out is a, a kidnapped dwarf um that they have tied up and are apparently going to throw over board. Um, so they immediately decide like what they need to do there. They there's a discussion that they have at the beginning of three about like, should we go, should we swim? Not, I don't think the boat has appeared yet. They're trying to figure out like what to do to get off the island. And they discuss their swimming skills. Um, which uh, just to continue that discussion we had about like what did they remember and what did they have from their former lives and and how much of it is coming back and they're not sure on that they talk about like swimming how they were all really great swimmers in narnia but then back in england only susan was a really good swimmer and the rest of them didn't like were really bad at it but in narnia they all had those skills and so they were wondering like so do do you think now that we're back here do we automatically swim really well again or do we have to like develop that again um and they kind of raise that question but they don't get answers except for i guess maybe they do give us the answer because um once susan like uses her her archery skills to get the two men out of the boat um, her and Peter, it says they just jump in and, and swim out to get the boat and bring the dwarf back. And so I guess Peter swims well now. Um, so maybe that's supposed to be the answer to that question. There's, an, there's a cool thing right there with um, Susan, like shooting her thing and saying like that she, she, she didn't try. She wasn't trying to kill them. She just wanted to scare them because she didn't want people to think that she would miss from that shorter range. Yeah. And I think that shows, like, Susan is pretty insecure, for lack of a better yeah. word. And I, I think that is something that comes with her being a teenager. Like, Lucy and Edmund don't even think about, like, what other people think, really. But Susan is, like, very much aware and thinking about that. Yeah. That's true. That's interesting. Something interesting that I um, that I wonder is, and we're talking with uh, Mabbit about this and, and stuff, is these two guys in the boat, um, they're Telmarines, which we're going to get to know who those people are, but basically they're this group of humans that came from the human world like centuries and centuries and millennia ago. 
and kind of created this society off in the north area of Narnia um, and then kind of took over Narnia after the four kings and queens, the kids left. Um, but anyways, what I want to bring up is that these two soldiers have it. They're described as they had steel caps on their heads and light shirts of chain mail. Um, and something I think is interesting is it's been what 1300 years in of Narnia time since the line, the witch in the wardrobe. That's what the movie says. I don't know if they made up that number, but, but it, there's been a significant amount of time that has passed enough for this castle to completely turn to ruins and stuff. And we're talking like hundreds and hundreds of years. I am just fascinated that it doesn't seem that their like um, society or technology has evolved very much. Like he says, they have chain mail and stuff. And I'm like, well, that's what they, he's still using like medieval weaponry and, and bows and arrows and things. And if you just think about in 1300 years, how much our like weaponry has evolved and changed in like the human world. Um, and I, to be honest, I think that's just like CS Lewis being like, not really thinking about it. Um, and I don't think that's meant to mean anything. I think that's just like a, well, I don't know. Uh, and I'm wondering if we could play around with that when we create their, like the Telmarines, like weapons and shields and armor and stuff that maybe we don't stick to just like medieval type stuff, but some maybe funky looking kind of futuristic type stuff because that makes sense to me because it's been so long they would have improved and evolved things um anyways just a thought that i but also then it's neat like with caspian when he later gets a sword from a dwarf like he talks about how that sword that was made by that dwarf made his um like telmarine sword feel like uh like feel as useful as a dumb stick like oh yeah fragile as anything could be that's so interesting um in this chapter we're also we then meet the dwarf although we don't actually meet him yet so we don't know his name but introduced the into the concepts of old narnia and new narnia yeah um he mentions caspian and he also mentions like, the idea that there are ghosts the farther south, the farther closer to the sea, the more into the wood you go. Um. Um, and the, the, the two men that were bringing him to his death were more afraid the, of his death than he was. Yeah. I love that. I love that because that, as we're looking at this as an allegory, there's some really interesting, to me, allegorical things with the concept of religion. Um, and I think that's one of them. I mean, whether it's religion or just like your societal beliefs or things like that, but like that idea that like this part of Narnia, there are ghosts and stuff is an idea that was handed down. And they talk about it a little bit later that was kind of created by the Telmarine leaders to get people to stay away from that area because they thought that's where Aslan might return by the sea. And so they, they told people these stories and people believe them. And then they found things in this instance here that kind of 
proved their belief. Do you know what I mean? Something that happened that was more just a coincidence and actually has an ex- a logical explanation, but they're like, that's proof that there are ghosts here. And they ran away and then forever are never going to come back to that place because like they've been taught that's where the ghosts are, which is really just, you know what I mean? I just think that's an interesting, um, I don't mean to imply that like religion is just stories and people, but that like they have this whole system of belief that was created for them that they, um, they really believe is, is, true there and it it it, in some instances and this is what i think we have to be careful of sometimes um it actually kept them away from what i think lots of people would read in this story as the true religion quote unquote of aslan you know what i mean kept them away from experiencing that um because of of fear that this belief of well don't do that because x thing will happen that fear kept them away from actually seeing or was actually designed to keep them away from actually seeing that interestingly um also just a completely unrelated side note is sometimes the narrator of this book like the voice like you know i mean like c.s lewis's like narrative voice Sometimes is really funny. Sometimes it's not. I mean, there's just like weirdo things here. It says like Edmund cut the dwarf's bonds with his pocket knife. And then it just adds, Peter's sword would have been sharper, but a sword is very inconvenient for this sort of work because you can't hold it anywhere lower than the hilt. And I was like, okay, great. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Maybe we can put that in our thing where our Peter goes to like cut the things and then Edmund is like no I know it's sharper but (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's so weird the times that he chooses to go on little tangents like that and and when he doesn't there's also something like that where like they're eating breakfast of apples it's like eating breakfast of apples is not very good when you've had a supper of apples the entire night before (laughs) yeah which yeah it's so funny I think those those moments um and even going into it is a good um, segue into the next section. But when the dwarf, Trumpkin, do we know his name yet? We don't know his name yet, but yeah, mm-hmm. Trumpkin. Well, his name's Trumpkin. Um, when uh, he starts to tell the story of Prince Caspian, we kind of go into this weird, like it's not the voice of Trumpkin telling the story, even though plot-wise Trumpkin is telling the kids the story. And the narrator takes over and is like, look, I'm just going to tell you this story. I'm not going to tell it to you like Trumpkin told it because the kids interrupted and asked a bunch of questions. So like, I'm just going to tell it to you normal. So here we go. Um, it's so interesting because like, I, like, who is this person? You know what I mean? Like, who is this narrator supposed to be? Like, we never get that like clarified. But yeah. What if it's Aslan? I don't know. Um... I think there's one more thing we need to talk about in this chapter, and that is what is introduced pretty much near the end, just before we go into the, the next chapter, which is the idea of old Narnia and new Narnia. New Narnia is the Telmarines that came in and conquered Narnia after the um, high kings, or the, the kings and queens, the Pevensies left. Yes. Um, and old Narnia is the remnants of like the talking beasts and the interesting creatures that were alive in the day of um, the Pevensey's rule 
like banding together and trying to survive and like flee from the new Narnians, the Telmarines. Because I guess they like, I don't know if they waged war, does it say kind of against the old Narnians, but like they didn't believe, they didn't teach their people in that old magic and stuff. And so they all kind of went into hiding like the dwarves and the, the talking animals and, and animals, I guess, gradually over time lost their ability to talk. The ones that didn't go into hiding and, and as they like procreated and stuff, they gradually just lost that ability. And, and basically it's kind of a human society, uh, the new Narnia, quote unquote, even though you learn as, as the story goes, that some of the old Narnians are in hiding because if they come out, they get hunted down because the King Miraz and, and the Kings before him, looks like have been kind of afraid of that and afraid of their people knowing about that. And they don't, there's only a couple of people that still tell the stories of the old Narnia. Um, and that's how Caspian finds out about it. But it feels like it's an it's a fairy tale and it's like an old wives tale but it's actually true so that contrasting with what we just talked about with the ghosts it's kind of the other side of that coin is like the these stories that do feel like oh that's ridiculous that that that's not centered on reality um is just because it's centered on a different reality and your reality is your reality and our sometimes our brains can't fathom other things existing until you experience it. And so most of the, the Telmarines, they don't even, it, it feels like it's a fairy tale. Like, oh yeah, those stories of dwarves and, and talking centaurs and things, that's all just fairy tales that people created to tell their kids metaphors. Um, and then Caspian finds out, no, it's actually real. There's an interesting contrast to the stories they do tell about the ghosts, which are fake. But anyways, that's interesting. Yeah, I think there's something neat in these books of like what what we get used to, um, like in the horse and his boy when the when Shasta slash Kor arrives in um, like Arkenland, he's talking to these talking beasts and they like aren't even conscious of the fact that there's a threat because they're so used to it being like no threats at all. And I think that's probably how Caspian the first was able to come in and conquer Narnia so easily. Like all of the animals were just used to Peter and Lucy and Edmund and Susan, like taking them on and then it being fine. But then when they actually had to fight, they didn't know how. And then later in this book, it talks about um, uh, Knickerbrick being like just aggressive all of the time because he's used to having to be aggressive all of the time. That's the uh, the other dwarf there. Yeah, the other dwarf. Because yeah. if he isn't, then nothing ever really gets done. Um, all right, moving into the next chapter. Uh, we learn about King Caspian the 10th and how he, or Prince Caspian, <laughs> um, how he is the heir to his uncle, King Miraz, um, until because Miraz does not have an heir of his own, a son of his own. Um, Caspian is attended to by his nurse, who, as we sort of alluded to, um, tells Caspian stories of old Narnia. Um, 
And because of that, when Caspian ends up telling Miraz on accident that the nurse was telling him those stories, she ends up getting sent away by Miraz and replaced with the tutor, Dr. Cornelius. Mr. Long, if you want to start talking about him. Um, well, just uh, to say that um, the this is where the we, we see that influence of Douglas Gresham, who is C.S. Lewis's stepson, um, and his influence on this script, saying you got to stay true to how the book was written. And so in the script for the, the play that we're using, um, it, it does this. It goes, we start where the book starts. And then at this point, we then go back and tell the whole story of Prince Caspian. And it takes like all of act one before intermission. And they go into all this detail with Prince Caspian and, and um, Prince Caspian's nurse. And Cornelius is a huge character in the, the stage play. Um, and uh, probably the largest, probably the character with the most lines besides the four kids and Prince Caspian. Um, uh, and he takes all the time to go through this history um, until, if I'm not mistaken, like right before intermission is then when the story ends and they, they meet up with Caspian. Um, and then all the rest of it is the second act. Um, anyways, I just point that out because um, in the movie, they like do not go into this at all like just very very little bit of a history of prince caspian they're like it doesn't super matter uh, to you understanding why there's going to be an hour and a half of sword fighting coming later um but uh they wanted to focus on all that stuff that came later and a lot of the big like visual spectacle and fighting um and they don't go into this at all so that's a big difference between um the play and and the film adaptation is we actually will go into this whole backstory and watch Prince Caspian grow up because C.S. Lewis goes into it. He's, he's here telling the story for like five chapters. And so um, we will as well, just so everybody knows. Um, I love the name Pruna Prismia, which is Miraz's wife, the queen. <laughs> um, yeah, and we, I mean, we, we start to learn about the story Miraz is not supposed to be the king. What are we on? Caspian the tenth now? Is that yes. what it is? Um, and uh, how did he get the king? Do you remember? Did he like he like a usurper? Right? He. Yeah, I have in my notes here just in quotes. Miraz is a usurper. Um, yeah, Cornelius tells um, Caspian that about how Miraz um originally did he kill kill Caspian's father well Caspian's father I think died somehow and then Miraz made himself the lord protector over um young Caspian um but then as soon as Caspian's mother died the good queen as soon as she died Miraz then started like picking off the people that were protecting Caspian or like protecting Caspian's right to the throne, like sending them to go fight giants or saying that they were traitors and killing them because of that. Um, Until there was nobody left to stop him from being like, I am the king now. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, I love at this point. So Cornelius comes in the new tutor uh, and starts secretly telling Caspian the stories, continuing telling the stories that his nurse told. Um, we don't really get much background on who this nurse was, but um, we, Caspian discovers over time that like, oh, Cornelius is like half dwarf. Um, and so that's why he knows all these things and, and is able to teach them to Caspian secretly at night up on the tower where no one can hear because that's how the nurse got um, uh, pruned um, was uh, because they found out that that she was telling Caspian these stories and that was a big threat to Miraz, so he got rid of the nurse. Um, so Cornelius wants Caspian to know these things so that he can be a better king and help rule old Narnia as well, but he does it in secret. I love um, how he says, or how Miraz says, never let me catch you talking or thinking either about all those silly stories again. Um, and it just reminded me of we, you know, we've been talking about a monster calls, and in the monster calls, it says it talks about how stories are uncontrollable, but they are the most powerful thing uh, in the world. Uh, if 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 you look at it in in one way, and and I love that here, like that's what Miraz is afraid of is is these stories and storytelling, and and again, it 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 reinforces to me the the idea of how important and powerful storytelling is which is what theater is right um and that it it for good or bad or neither but usually it'll be for good or bad like the telling of these stories helps us create our own view of who we are as human beings and our existence um and so just like the stories in a monster calls that the monster tells connor literally changes him and his ability to handle his grief same here like these stories is what completely changes Caspian's um life and his um life's goal and mission and so I just think that's cool that they both kind of have that parallel um in here about the reverence towards storytelling and how influential that can be I also think I might I'm going to look at the script again and, and see what possibilities there are, but I, I'm going to look into seeing if, if Cornelius can be cast as like a female um, in our production. Um, we're going to be, we've been talking about design elements. We just had a meeting yesterday and, and Mabbitt trying to figure out it's going to be difficult in the Narnia world. One of our challenges is we've got humans and we've got dwarves and we have talking animals and we have non-talking animals and we have giants and we have trees that come to life and we have mice amongst the world of animals. We've got mice, we've got bears, like things of all different sizes. But what we have to work with are human teenagers from the ages of 14 to 18 and um, that are all of similar sizes. So how do we show, and we've got adult humans, we've got you know, nine-year-old humans. And like, as far as casting, like, okay, how does this work? Like trying to get people across that. So obviously height isn't going to be something we're going to be able to use very much to tell the difference between a giant and an adult human and a child human and a dwarf 
and a bear and a mouse, you know what I mean? Which all have very distinct sizes. We won't be able to use size as much to our advantage. So we're talking about costume and show. She's talking about like dwarves are going to be, it's going to be the beards and the hair that are going to kind of showcase that. And we're talking about other things we'll probably talk about later. when some of these other creatures come out of how we're going to do this for our audiences. But um, it talks about when, when uh, Trumpkin is introduced his red hair and he can almost can't even see his face because there's so much hair in his beard and everything. Um, and uh the other thing it talks about is that all dwarves, it says, are very, what is it, clever or, um, uh, I forget, it says, um, oh, indeed, the one meets bad dwarves. I never heard of a dwarf who was a fool. Trumpkin immediately at the very, when we first get introduced to him, he's making jokes when he, he's about to be murdered and thrown over, but he's like making jokes about things and stuff. And I think that's something distinct about the dwarves as well. In the next chapter, it talks a little more about um, what Cornelius teaches Caspian, and I think it's super cool. Like he he is teaching him the stuff of old Narnia, but throughout the years, it, like there's this list of just insane amounts of things. Just like, he is such a well-rounded, educationally human being, Caspian. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's all that's in the script too. They have these these teaching sessions where he's learning other things as well they have his like training sessions where he's like learning fencing and learning stuff um yeah that's awesome it's all in there. Yeah. um okay and then the queen has a son and that is bad news bears for caspian because miraz was only keeping him him alive because he himself did not have an heir but now that he does have an heir he contrives to kill Caspian and Cornelius sends him away because of that. Yeah. And that is, that is when we learned that Miraz is a usurper and that Caspian is the true heir to the crown of both new and old Narnia. Um, at that point, then Cornelius gifts Caspian, um, as it said in the book, the most sacred treasure of Narnia, which is Queen Susan's horn. Um, and then he is sent away into the rain. Yeah, and the horn is is if you blow on it, help will come, right? I guess is that thing. So, um, but yeah, there's a whole sequence of him riding a horse. Sure, that's gonna be fun. Did we throw away the wooden horse? No, actually, it's in the Abbot's backyard right now, but it's got to be cooler than that. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. We're going to go all out with these things. So um, we've actually brought in um, uh, Mark and Madeline Ashton. They've been helping us with some design concepts this summer for the show. Um, uh, Madeline was a, a student of ours uh, seven or eight years ago. Um, who designed some sets and stuff. She was, she was on the productions company, not the stage crew, but she was uh, kind of a visual artist and, and then created some really cool set designs for us and then has gone on to win national set design awards um, and now works as a set designer at the Hale in West Valley and designs all those crazy things that they do with their like rising stages and stuff. And she just won uh, the, like an award for like the best community theater set design of the decade in America 
for um she just did uh i forget what the show was called that they did just did at the hail that she designed the set for and she's working on stuff for them there she's come this summer and is working with us on some really cool design concepts and then her father mark um he helped us back in the days of like death of a salesman and aida and troyos and cressida because that's when his kids were here um helped build things and helped us create the the like earthquake in emperor and galilean that destroys everything and, and fun stuff like that so we brought them back in to help us with these some of these kind of crazier effects and things and so they drew some designs for a horse that they're going to help us make and stuff and so yeah it's exciting i hope kids are getting excited for this it's gonna be crazy yep the rainstorm and the trees being aggressive and stuff and then it, at the, that sequence ends i don't know how it ends in the play but at least in the book with caspian getting knocked off of his horse and yep. his horse running away from him yep um yep <laughs> wait are you gonna make a horse that can run away from caspian what? yeah we have to i and i was like look can we just cut this sequence can we just say and then caspian rode a horse we, we have to actually show it but then i realized there's that 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 is an important plot point that the horse runs away that's how cornelius comes over so we're gonna keep it and uh see what we can pull off there that's awesome <laughs> uh when caspian wakes up he finds himself in a dark cave with things that are not human <laughs> three of them yep do you want to talk about our three new characters um well it's 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 this other dwarf nickerbrick right and then there's truffle hunter the badger and then uh there's mrs truffle hunter in the play is that in the book mm -mm. Truffle hunter's wife there's the badger's wife in the play too um and then who's the other one that's there uh there's nickerbrick truffle hunter and trumpkin oh trumpkin right right because right. we already need trumpkin um yeah and he's never met dwarves or talking badgers before so he kind of assumes at the beginning that they're gonna kill him right yeah um it also seems like truffle hunter uh who is a talking badger uh seems to be the calmest and most level-headed of of the three um and it talks about like animals understand a little bit more than the dwarves do about things there's a sentence that says something like that because they still remember um their their memory is still there from when the humans reigned peacefully and kindly so they're not afraid of humans like the dwarves are who have been treated so terribly like for good reason the dwarves are are kind of afraid of humans and and look at them as enemies because of their relationship but apparently truffle hunter and the other animals remember back to the days when humans were not their enemies yeah and the, the other dwarf that is Nickabrick, he he does not remember that. He is very, very anti-human. And like he actually does want to kill Caspian. If it weren't for Truffle Hunter and Trupkin, Caspian would be dead. Like right there. <laughs> Story over. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah, Nickabrick's fun. Nickabrick is interesting. I forget what happens to Nickabrick in the book. So I'm excited to find out because I remember I watched the movie 
last week and they kill Nickerbrick off in the movie. And I remember when that happened, I was like, I don't remember that happening in the book. So I'm excited to look back and see what does or doesn't happen with Nickerbrick. Hmm. No, I, I read this not that long ago and now I don't even remember what. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, oh, hmm. Neat. The, those, those are the three characters. And Trumpkin is the dwarf that is currently telling the story to the Pevensey children. Right. Um, into the next chapter. That, that chapter five ends with them talking about, um, with, yeah, them talking about finding and meeting the others. One, once they accept, the three of them accept that Caspian is the true king and should be the king and ruler of old Narnia. Um, chapter six is party time. They just go and meet all of the other characters. And I really hope that they all make it into the play because they're so neat. There are the bulgy bears, which are three very sleepy brown bears that are kind of, they're just funny. Then there's Pattertwig, the red squirrel, who is a very chattery little guy, but he's fast and sneaky and very, very helpful. Um, they then meet, because he then goes and gets a whole bunch of different animals to meet with them as well. They then meet the seven brothers of the Shadowing Wood, which are seven red dwarves that are all blacksmiths, and they gift um, new weapons and new armor for Caspian. Right after that, they meet the five black dwarves, and the, the biggest part about them meeting the black dwarves is that the dwarves that they then meet suggest inviting a hag, um, which is... It talks... Um, in the book about like the creatures of old and how there are lots of them. Um, yep. Uh, and how there's like the, there were good creatures and bad creatures and hags are some of the bad creatures. Does that happen right now or is that later that the hag comes in? The hag doesn't come in. The the five black dwarves are just like we know of a hag if you want to go invite them. Oh right right okay. And then. Um, but uh, Truffle Hunter luckily shuts that down. They then meet um, Glenstorm the Centaur and his three sons. They're all prophets and stargazers. And it is then that they decide that the council that they're going to have at the Dancing Lawn is one of war. Yep. Yeah, so almost all of those are in the play. Much to Mama Abbott's chagrin um and as we talked about earlier like yeah that's what we're trying to figure out right now like how to create all of those things um how to have a squirrel and a bulgy bear you know what i mean made out of human beings that are similar in size and so we're looking at things like we're going to be doing some probably some shadow puppetry and some marionette work for things like squirrels and mice um and uh um we're also not going to be playing with like actual like so take truffle hunter for example like a badger we don't necessarily want to put a kid in a full-on like badger outfit with just like their eyes poking out do you know what i mean like they wore a badger costume for halloween um because that feels a little bit like uh 
not cheap, but it feels kind of, I don't know. I just don't want it to look like everyone's in Halloween costumes. And so the, the really creative design stuff that Mabbit's doing to, to bring out the humanity of these talking creatures along with their different, the aspects of their different like um, animal hoods uh, is really interesting um, where we're going to go. We still haven't landed on like final designs, but we've, we've been talking about uh, those things, but um, it's going to be, this is going to be an exciting scene in the, in the play when all these things start to come out and we start meeting these different things and the audience is going to see all these different ways that we're going to tell this story with these magical creatures who, by the way, later in the story, spoilers, have to all join together and fight in battle along with a whole bunch of other types of creatures. But uh, yeah, I'm particularly excited about the centaurs. Um, they're definitely in the play and, and the dude and his, his two sons, particularly what's his name? Glenn, Glenn storm. Yeah. Glenn storm. Um, yep. They're in there. And we, we, the, the Ashton's already started drawing up some sketches of how to have a person and, and their hind legs move with them as they walk um, and, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, we're going to be creating some centaurs and some bears and, there's a, have we been introduced to the giant yet? No, the giant doesn't come in until the next chapter. Yeah, we've got ideas for that too. And then of course, in a, in a minute here, we'll get, so maybe I'll just move forward here to this, but we meet what I think is one of C.S. Lewis's greatest characters that he ever created, which is Reepicheep the mouse. Um, and... Uh, which is a challenge. Reepicheep is a challenge. He's such a great character and he's such, his personality is so unique, but him being a mouse. And that's a big plot point is that he's so small. Um, creates some obstacles for us that we were discussing at lunch yesterday. And I think we've got some good ideas for that and his tribe of mice um and he kind of plays a bigger part in the next book the voyage of the don treader than he does here in prince caspian so he's not all over the place and in fact he's he's here less than he is in the movie they they loved him a lot in the movie and they cast eddie izzard to voice him so they gave him a lot more to do in the movie prince caspian he's actually not in it a ton in the book and the play but we do get introduced to him and and he's really fun so yeah i love repeat cheap <laughs> And they have like dryads and naiads, or, or no, sorry, the dryads and naiads remain in sleep thus far. Which are like the trees, right? Yeah, the tree, the trees and the rivers. Yeah, the river. <laughs> we talked about that yesterday too. <laughs> um, and then the the next chapter begins with them finally being at the dancing lawn, um, and all all of the Narnians together in a council of war. But as soon as they are about to start the Council of War, Dr. Cornelius arrives um, and describes um, Destria's betrayal. Uh, that, that is Caspian's horse, how she just ran back, basically. And now Miraz knows that Caspian has escaped. Um, so they decide to move to Aslan's How, which if you've read The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, is 
uh, it's it's a building or a, a structure that's like a hill that's been constructed on top of um, the stone table, which is the site of which, like where um, Aslan was uh, sacrificed and then resurrected. Um, there's like now a maze of tunnels that's running around and under it. Um, and the, the stone table is in the room that is the central like war council room. They don't actually use the table as a table, <laughs> um, but it, it is there. Um, like that religious symbol, I guess, in this. Um, yeah. Uh, then later in chapter seven, Caspian, the, the, the Caspian's army is losing because Miraz has been launching full-on attacks through the forests, trying to take down the old the threat of old Narnia and Caspian. Um, Caspian's army is losing. They 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 are coming up with really good strategies, but something always goes wrong. Uh, one of the largest uh, battles that is lost is because of giant Wimble weather that he. He's not very smart and he went at the wrong time and gave his position away, which then caused there to be many Nar old Narnian casualties. Um, it is then that they decide to blow Queen Susan's horn. Um, and there's there's mm -hmm. some neat stuff there. I, I, some, I'm currently in a production of King Lear and I was just thinking about like, who is can say we are at the worst, the worst, uh, like that, that whole line because they decide like, they're like if we don't blow it now, then we're gonna wait until everyone's dead before we actually decide to blow the horn. Um, like if we wait, then it'll be too late. It's just a neat thing. Um, they decide that help will probably come in the form of either Aslan returning or the kings and queens of old returning. Um, those being uh, Dr. Cornelius, talks about where they would probably come in being lantern waste which is where they're originally spat out from the wardrobe or help from coming across the sea in and meeting at care paraval um they decide to send the squirrel patter twig to lantern waste because he can get there fast and without even being seen and they send trumpkin down to care paraval which is then where we pick up with him back um, in the next chapter with the Pevensies. But there's a, there's a neat line that I think is, um, it showcases what Trumpkin is. And it's, it's kind of funny, but also it is, like, it's, it's very cool. Um, it, it's one of the last lines in chapter seven that uh, talks about, like, there's a time for orders and there's a time for advice. I've given my advice and now I'm ready to take orders. I just think it's right. really cool in that. Yeah, that's cool. That's an important skill in life to know when to play which role and when to do that. Um, I think some of us fall too far on either end of that sometimes in life. Um, we feel more comfortable just taking orders from other people or we feel more comfortable giving orders and making our opinions known um, and finding that balance of, of when to lead and when to listen sometimes is, is hard. So good on you, Trumpkin.
Cool. And that takes us to, like I said, about intermission in the play. So yeah, it's probably a good stopping point. Yeah. Well, good talk. Anything else that you have from those chapters? Nope. Yeah, it's exciting. We've now like created this whole world and we've got all these plot points and now things start to get crazy. Um, but uh, that'll be for future episodes. So tune in later. Later.